Dementia in Practice is recorded and produced in multiple locations. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples, their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia. Physical exercise is the brain panacea. However, if apathy is a really strong feature of a lot of young onset dementia, sometimes recommending exercise can cause more internal stress than they need. Hi, it's Hilton Coppy here, and welcome back to Dementia in Practice, the podcast that's made by GPs for GPs and for other health professionals who want to learn more about dementia. As always, my friends, Dr. Marita Long and Dr. Steph Daly from Dementia Training Australia are with me. And so today we're talking about younger onset dementia. That's dementia in people under 65 years of age. And Steph, you've done an interview with someone who's an expert in this field. Yeah, I've spoken to Professor Amy Brotman, who's a stroke and cognitive neurologist based in Melbourne. She's also a clinical researcher at the Fleury Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. And she's going to talk to us a bit about some of the similarities and differences of how dementia affects those under the age of 65. Right. So let's have a listen. There are a number of definitions. In Australia, we usually agree on a time of 65 years as the cutoff. Obviously, that's completely arbitrary, but we usually say people aged under 65. So it has to be onset. So that is the start of the symptoms in people under the age of 65. Some countries use 55, but that is particularly young. It's not common. It is regarded as a rare disease. It's been really hard to do good incident studies. The ones where it's been done, it looks like it's about 15 people per 100,000 population. They do vary hugely. And in some of the Italian studies, it's much more than that, more than double. They've estimated there's around 25 to 30,000 people in Australia living with young onset dementia. And is younger onset dementia played by the same problems that the older onset is in in terms of people having a delay in diagnosis and perhaps people living with the symptoms um, for some time before finding out what's what's actually going on? It's plagued by those problems and then some. It's actually Mm. far, far worse. They've done a number of studies looking at delays to diagnosis in in typical dementias, so what we'd regard as, say, Alzheimer's disease in a 70 or 80-year-old. And the time from the first symptom notice, the tipping point or the sentinel event, to uh, diagnosis is one to three years in late-onset dementias. In young-onset dementias, it's more like five to seven years. So that's a huge time for families and patients to have enormous diagnostic uncertainty. Mm. And one of the things I'm interested to know is what would be the sorts of things that as a GP might alert us to the fact that 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 is something that's going on? Because obviously, um, I know from my own personal experience that people with younger onset dementia often present with a wide variety of symptoms that aren't the classic short-term memory loss. There can be lots of other symptoms. So can you give us any key things that might alert us to there being a problem sooner? 
It's really hard. And I'd have to say as a referrer for 20 years, I think GPs are pretty good. But the issue is that you can, you know, the commonest cause of young onset dementia is Alzheimer's. So we, and we often do forget that because we always think about, you know, the rare and the dreadful and, and things like frontotemporal disease. The commonest cause is still Alzheimer's. However, young onset dementia, Alzheimer's is not, people don't usually present with short-term memory loss. They often present with other features. They have often changes in behaviour. They can look more like someone who is presenting with frontotemporal dementia. So the things to look out for, and it's often a family member who will actually express concerns, not the person. So I can't tell you how many patients I've seen who've come in and said, there's absolutely nothing wrong with me, but the family member's sitting there very concerned. So I think that it's you know a change in behaviour that can't be explained by life events. The real difficulty is that if people, you know, people do have massive changes in their um, lives in their midlife and a lot of the features that in for, for things like frontotemporal dementia look like a midlife crisis so you know social withdrawal or being less interested often developing really fixed habits and obsessions being apathetic being less affectionate a lot of these things can be interpreted as marital discord and most of the time they are So it is very difficult. I think the things, the red flags for me are, you know, any major change in behaviour such that it's really announced by multiple family members. Anything that happens in the public space, unfortunately that can be forensic. Any, you know, significant change such as, you know, really the things that we'd look at later in life like losing the car in a car park, being unable to find it. Unfortunately, a lot of recent accidents can indicate a more posterior onset dementia like posterior cortical atrophy, which presents with profound visuospatial problems and is really common. The onset's usually in your late 50s as a woman. And, you know, the, so the classic sort of disinhibited behaviour, they're not really the things that, that happen. They can, but they're not always the first event. And it, these sentinel or tipping point events can be quite subtle. So I suppose the, the story from that is really listen to the patient and to their informant. Mm. And uh, I mean, obviously, with all of these cases, we're going to be referring on to a specialist service. Is there a specialist service that really fits for these patients? Like, would it be the geriatricians or would it be neurologists? And and if it is neurologists, are there specific neurologists who have an interest in cognition or, or will all neurologists be able to help with this? I'm glad to say, if you had to ask me that question 15 years ago, uh, Stephanie, I would have said that there's nowhere to refer these people, but we've really got some great centres around Australia now, and there's people with an interest in each of the major capital cities. So I think that young onset dementia is best referred to a neurologist. Obviously, I'm a biased, I'm a neurologist, or a psychiatrist, a neuropsychiatrist with an interest in young onset dementia. And there are centres in right throughout Australia. I mean, in, in Melbourne, we've obviously got my clinic and the, the neuropsychiatrists at the Royal Melbourne are very interested in young onset dementia as well. In Sydney, there's the whole Frontier group and in Brisbane, in Adelaide, in Perth, in Hobart. So there's plenty of sites and they actually are compiled on the ECDC website. We've got a list of national referral sites 
Dementia Australia have got some information as well, as well as um, the Dementia a Forward um, website in Sydney. So, Marita, um, I know uh, you're interested in this idea of a timely diagnosis, and we talk a lot about that in our other podcasts. It was sort of a little shocking to me in a way to hear Amy talking about the extended delay for diagnosis in younger people. What was your thinking around that? I was actually pleasantly surprised that she said for older onset it was only one to three years, actually. But yeah, the five to seven, well, exactly what she said. I mean, I think of the people who come in and see me in that 45 to 55 to 65 age bracket, and it is a time of amazing change. So it's not unusual for people to come in and talk about some of those presentations that she said. You know, you can see lots of people going through marriage breakdown, having the elderly parents, having either adult children or young children still at home financial insecurity, you know, job pressures, mortgages, all those kind of things that can really explain some changes in behaviour as the presenting um, symptom. But I think the take-home message for me has always been there that if someone is reporting those, that just like with any person that we're thinking there could be an issue here, that we make sure that we go through, again, all those inclusion and exclusion criteria that we've talked about and not leave it unturned and think, oh, this is just because you know, you're having a difficult time to really listen and explore. And of course, if you can get a collaborative history, it's probably again, somewhat more difficult in that age group. I was thinking about that too. And the, uh, this concept about listening being so important, like we always talk about the diagnosis coming a lot from history. And Steph, Amy spoke quite I thought eloquently about the sort of things that we need to be listening for as GPs when we're thinking about a younger onset dementia. Just wondering what your experience has been with that, in particular to getting information or stories from the the family members. Mm, I think, you know, echoing both what the things that you've both said really there, it's about listening to the person or as Amy said, often the person who's come with that person, so the collateral history again. And and I think from my experience, when I've met with people who've received a diagnosis, and it typically is that kind of long, long wait before they get a diagnosis, you look back and you can see that there were problems with their work organisation. And we heard actually from Anne way back in the first episode that that was one of the things that she first noticed. And people often end up you know, not being able to work because of some of the cognitive issues that they're experiencing. And so taking that seriously, and as Marita said, trying to exclude depression and anxiety, which are often very common in that age group as well. But really, you know, if if it strikes a chord that there's something not up and, and the treatments that you're offering or the support that you're offering isn't providing any benefit, then maybe you need to explore these other things. And, you know, remembering that they're rare, but also remembering that they occur, I think is is the bottom line. Yeah, that old thing about it's pretty hard to make a diagnosis if you don't think of it. And age is a barrier or younger age is a barrier for me as a GP to thinking about dementia. Other things come into my mind more quickly. The other thing that I was struck by was uh, when Amy was talking about the um, referral places being primarily in the cities, 
Marita, what about people living in rural and regional areas? Where does that leave them? Yeah, I think it would be very tricky in the re- more regional areas. I know in Adelaide, one of the geriatricians does a, I think it's monthly or two monthly younger onset clinic up in um, Port Augusta. Um, but the waiting time is it, for just the first appointment is well over 12 months. And so obviously, you know, these that's pushing it out even further because if you've waited like four years before the referral has gone in, that's another year on top of that, you know, it's all adding to the delay, isn't it? Which is obviously going to be a problem. And also access to, you know, people who have younger onset are going to require more testing um, and probably more detailed secondary care testing, including imaging, which is not going to be available, which will result in a trip to a city. I mean, all of that makes it a very complicated process. And something that we might not uh, be able to solve on this wonderful podcast, but it's worth pondering, particularly for people who are working and living in rural and regional areas. So Steph, your conversation continued with Amy. Let's hear what else you had to say. At least 10% of frontotemporal dementia has a genetic cause, up to 30% in people with a family history. And there are genes that can be tested for. In young onset Alzheimer's disease, there's a greater presentation of people with a genetic cause. Not all, not all, but many. And so things like the presenilin genes can be tested for. And obviously the other rare genetic causes such as Huntington's disease, some of the other rare dementias, there's a genetic form of Kreutzfeldt-Jakob that's quite common to present as a young onset dementia. So yes, there certainly are a much higher representation of genetic disorders in the young onset group. This is often a question that people ask us as general practitioners because they may have one or two parents who had who had a dementia and then they're concerned about it. But is it related to the age of onset or just the number of people in your family who have it? In fact, I was talking to someone the other day who has a, a friend who has like an aunt, parents and an, another cousin who has dementia. So that's obviously quite mm. a significant proportion of the family. With breast cancer, we have a way of stratifying the risk based on the number of people, I guess, affected. Is that the same? or not? There is a similar, there's, we use the same sort of score, a Goldman score for genetic risk. And in someone like that person you just referred to, well, that'd certainly be someone I'd send off to the genetic counsellors for discussion. It's really important though to try to have a proband that you have a genetic mutation on. A lot of the time I'm seeing people who've got family histories and a known genetic mutation. The only condition that we know of so far that truly anticipates, so your grandfather got Huntington's at 80, your mother got it at 60, you could get it at 40. So that's the only condition is Huntington's. There has been some talk about this mutation on the chromosome 9, which is a hexanucleotide repeat. So it's a long repeat disorder, but instead of being three, it's six. There is some suggestion that that anticipates, but I don't think that's ever been borne out in the literature. I see a lot of people like that in my clinic, Steph, that get referred with these strong family histories. What we do is we try to work out what the form of dementia was that's in the family 
and we certainly have very good relationships with our genetic counsellors. So if you had, you know, two parents who died of Alzheimer's at 95, I do not regard that as a high genetic risk because it's most likely that that was cumulative factors. If you had, you know, a mother, aunt, cousin, etc., who who were diagnosed in their 50s and 60s, I'd be sending you off to the genetic counsellors for sure. Mm. So, you know, now we know a lot more about some of the preventative or, you know, risk reduction, I guess, factors. How effective are those when people are presenting in the younger age groups? Are they still going to have a beneficial effect in terms of helping to, you know, sort of maintain that cognitive function for a bit longer? Presumably you've got a lot more cognitive reserve as well when you have a dementia starting in your 50s and 60s. So how much effect do those sorts of things have? We have much less data on the effects of multi-domain lifestyle interventions in young onset dementia. We certainly have some evidence that vascular risk factors and vascular disease contribute to or worsen or amplify the cognitive and behavioural problems of people with young onset dementia. That's mainly been done in the frontotemporal dementia space. But we know, for example, that, you know, the Mediterranean diet, that's been looked at in a number of uh, young onset dementias. There's certainly beneficial effects there. Physical exercise is something that is the brain panacea. However, it's really hard. I mean, if apathy is a really strong feature of of, of a lot of young onset dementia, or a lot, a lot of dementia full stop, it's very difficult to get people to exercise. And sometimes recommending exercise to a family when their loved one literally wants to be a couch potato can cause more internal stress within the family than they need, I think. Mm-hmm. And so with regards to sort of supports for people with younger onset dementia, I know that Dementia Australia do offer some supports for, for that population. Are you aware of any other supports or, or the specific things that Dementia Australia do do for the younger onset group? So Dementia Australia had a young onset dementia key worker for many years. That's been stopped now that that's been incorporated into the NDIS. And so there's no specific young onset dementia key workers with Dementia Australia anymore. They've got a lot of people who are doing work in this space, though, so they can certainly give counselling and support. Each of the dementias has an organisation or an association attached to it who often can provide information and education. I know that we set up the Australian branch of the Australian Frontotemporal Dementia Association over 10 years ago now. And the prime aim for that was actually to set up support groups for carers. So there's now, I'm pleased to say that that's now been taken over by Dementia Australia and those support groups are now running right throughout Australia, including some remotely. So people in remote and rural areas can actually attend a support group by a remote call. They are just lifelines because it's often very hard for a carer of someone with young onset dementia because, again, because the behavioural problems and insight and, and apathy are so common in young onset dementia, 
often the person with the lived experience of dementia doesn't really need those supports. They're sort of doing their own thing and are less concerned about getting support or attending support groups. That's not always the case. And things like posterior cortical atrophy, as I mentioned, is really common in women in their 50s and men, but more common in women. They're really troubled by their symptoms. And there is an excellent PCA internationally. It's based in the UK and they've got a chat that you can join. Dementia Australia also offers support. There was a support group running for PCA at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, but like many things, it's very hard to maintain the funding for that. So there's lots of stuff, but again, it's all about links and getting connected and people often need a lot of help with that. Yeah, and I suppose because of the age group that are affected, it also you might have, you know, young adult children or, or teenagers potentially who are then the carers. And so it needs to be much more of a sort of family-based approach because that can be very challenging for those carers that are involved in supporting the person living with dementia. And also that people who are affected are likely to be still working, which is brings me on to my next question, which is about dementia-friendly workplaces and how aware are organisations about the possibility that people within their organisations may be, you know, having some symptoms of perhaps a dementia or even supporting people to maintain some ability to work post-diagnosis because obviously some people will be able to continue working depending on what their, their work involves and how mm. they're affected. Look, I have, I think like any workplace I've seen, you know, people be sacked or have had terrible treatment from employers. I've also seen what I regard as quite extraordinary support from um, employers with the diagnosis. I've got a man who's essentially unable to speak because he's had a young onset dementia that's affected his speech, a PPA, and he's still working the support of his co-workers in doing sort of quality control and infection on the factory floor because his boss has been so supportive. We often see that people have been demoted or sidelined for many years because they do have their dementia has been impacting on their work performance. So that's something that we'll often see. And sometimes workplaces are reasonable and sometimes they're not. We've had situations where you know, someone has essentially lost their job and we've had to go in and, and state that this was because of their dementia and all their payout has been based on the performance when they left the job, not when they were at their peak. And that, that can be quite difficult. So I think dementia-friendly workplaces, we've got a long way to go. And it does really depend on what they're doing. You know, this man with the PPA, well, he used to have to do lots of emailing. His boss fortunately just said, no, you don't need to do that anymore. You know, visual especially, he's still great. So he can go and do the inspection on the factory floor. I think that we do need to have a pretty understanding and flexible workplace arrangement for that to work. Mm. And PPA is primary progressive aphasia. And I presume that's what Bruce Willis potentially has when he was recently came out in the media. So primary progressive aphasia, there's a number of causes. It can be a language onset dementia, but it's more likely under the frontotemporal dementia umbrella. And I think that's what Bruce Willis has. It sounds like he has what's called a progressive non-fluent aphasia, which is one of the primary progressive aphasias. 
Look, having him come out with that announcement is massive because it really means that, you know, people will start to look up what this means. Terry Pratchett had posterior cortical atrophy, the visuospatial or posterior onset Alzheimer's that's very slow, that often is more common in women but does affect men. And so that meant that, you know, things like the PCA support groups in Britain got a huge amount of funding because of that. So it really, this can be game changers for education about these conditions. So it's really important. So I was really struck in that part of the interview, Steph, around um, the, the way the impact of a dementia in a younger person affects that person, but all their, their family in such a broader or different kind of way and and the workplace as well. Just wonder what your thoughts were thinking about the impact of a younger onset dementia. Well, I guess with dementia generally, we always talk about it having impacts across the whole family and the whole sort of person. But with a younger onset, it's even more magnified, isn't it? Because you could have, if you're in your 50s, you could very well have you know, teenage children, you, your spouse is probably still working. You've got just, somebody's got to support the household and double up as a carer slash support person. It floors everybody, I would think, because your whole, in your fifties, you know, just thinking about, it's a silly analogy, but the game of life, the game, the game of life, you know, at that point in the game of life, you decide whether or not you're going to have a midlife crisis or are you going to think about saving for retirement? You know, that's what all your focus is about, that next phase of your life. And then suddenly you get this diagnosis and what do you do? It changes completely how you view yourself and your family. And that that is just must be so overwhelming. And it sounds like although there is support out there, it's maybe not as structured or as well-developed as it needs to be in order to support that whole group of people that are going through that massive, massive situation. And ideally, that's where GP can be helpful. Marita, how do you see the role of a GP and a general practice team stepping up to the mark with younger onset dementia? Well, I guess the most important thing is trying to get the message out that it does affect people under the age of 65 and thinking about it, you know, when people do come to to you in their 50s. And I guess often as the GP, you're not only that person's GP, but you're often the partner's GP and you're often the GP for the kids and potentially the GP for the parents because not let's not forget they've probably got parents who are still alive and are watching their child go through something like this. So I think for us, you know, and there was a lot of, I was thinking when I was listening to Amy, there were so many PCAs and PPAs and this and that. And I was thinking, oh gosh, this is so much to get our head around, but to understand really our jobs, not to know all the ins and outs of that, but to be able to support the family and look to see how we can find some of those networks, you know, tell them that there is NDIS. Because a lot of people still wouldn't know that they would be able to access something like NDIS. And in fact, the people I've seen actually probably get a better source of funding than the aged care population with dementia. There's probably more services that you can get for them to support them than the the older population, to be honest. I think the other big issue, which is a really difficult thing, is to have to think about the possibility of it being genetic. 
and the impact that that would have on the family. And so I think getting that right is really important and getting them either sent off to a genetic counsellor to start to think about what that's going to mean for the for the children. So how might you raise that issue, Marita? I suppose it's like when we've got to deliver any kind of difficult news. My approach would probably be to have a discussion with the person who's got the diagnosis and perhaps that would be, you know, going through the neurologist or the memory service that they go through to say, you know, this might be something we need to have a think about. And then again, it's supporting everyone through the process. So, you know, getting the information so you know what you can tell them that if this is in fact a genetic condition, that there are really good options now in terms of being able to offer testing if the person wanted testing. Things have come a long way now. We contemplate, you know, IVF if there's someone didn't want to know but didn't want to pass on that gene. So there's options for people. So I suppose knowing what they are and knowing how to help your patients and families access the correct information is really important. They've got to be ready for it too. Mm, yeah. mm, that state of readiness. And just another thing for us to know about, you know, like navigating the NDIS for someone with dementia is something that doesn't really come into my mind mm. very easily. It's like it, there's this cog needs to shift, like thinking about making a diagnosis of dementia in a, in a younger person. And similarly, Steph, I don't often think about dementia and the workplace, but clearly for younger onset dementia, that's a really big thing. And when we spoke with Heckle and Jekyll in uh, an earlier episode, that that was really important. As you mentioned, the interview you did with Anne, that was where her dementia first started to manifest. Just wondering, in what other ways might you think about the impact of a younger onset dementia? in relation to work? Well, I guess two things. One thing I think it's important for us to think of, as well as the NDIS support, is also thinking about perhaps psychological support for people who are going through this because, you know, there's going to be a lot of grief and loss and trauma feelings about losing your, you know, work is our sort of sense of identity in a way. And when we've talked about meaningful activity, that's kind of what work is for some people. So, you know, I think make, having access to psychological support is quite important for people who are receiving this diagnosis. And then going back to what Sharon was saying about a strengths-based approach. So working with the organisation, so this might not be our role, but the, you know, the, the organisation's role to work with the person on their strengths and look at ways in which they can still maintain some form of employment or something so that they can continue that meaningful activity. And if it's not within their organisation, then maybe there's some other approach that could be taken to, to do something else that's meaningful. Because I think there it is common to, to get that kind of apathy that comes along with with any kind of dementia, but particularly in younger onset. And then, you know, if if you're in your 50s and not doing much all day, that's then going to exacerbate everything in terms of mental health. So I think, you know, again, thinking about ways in which you can look at someone's strengths and like we've talked about before, re-enablement rather than just um, disengaging from things. Yeah, it was interesting. I was thinking about back to our episode where we talked to Dimity Pond about the social prescribing and when Amy was talking about someone, you know, when you're talking about getting someone to exercise and are apathetic and that may not work, I thought, oh, maybe... Parkrun would be an option for that kind of thing where the family could go. 
So it wasn't like, oh, you need to be doing exercise, but maybe they could all go along and do it as a means of getting some social contact supports and also getting some exercise when you're not really feeling like exercise. And it takes it out of the family realm because there's so much going on in the family. I've had a um, person with younger onset dementia where uh, one of his friends would take him for a walk and it was not exercise, it was a social thing, but they walked. So it was uh, disguised as social contact and friendship, which this man loved. He was a very gregarious person, but he wouldn't exercise if he was told to exercise. So that social aspect of it was was really, really helpful. And there might be in a younger person too, they may already have more established support networks perhaps than an older person. A lot of older people we see have started, some of those networks have started to break down a little bit because through illness and death, et cetera. So there might be a lot more intrinsic resources you can tap into, I guess, for that person. So Steph, in in finishing up this episode, what do you think for you was the take-home message from the interview with Amy? Probably the thing is to think, although this is a rare thing and, you know, maybe as a general practitioner, we might only have one or two patients in our career with a younger onset dementia, you are likely to see at least one. So, you know, keeping your wits about you because you may be the person that enables that diagnosis to happen. And as we said before, if you don't think about it, you're not going to pick it up. Well, folks, that's a wrap for this season of Dementia in Practice. We're hopeful that we'll be back again in the not too far distant future because there's always more to talk about with dementia. Absolutely. And in the meantime, if you want more resources, you can head to our website, dta.com.a slash GP or follow Dementia Training Australia on Facebook or at Dementia Train AU on Twitter. Before we finish up, I want to acknowledge the people who've worked incredibly hard behind the scenes to bring you this. Our wonderful producer, Kim Lester. Yay! Margaret Winbolt from Dementia Training Australia. Yay! And helping Margaret is Rebecca Brown at Dementia Training Australia. And for the recordings, Derek Meyer at Castaway Studios in Collingwood, Melbourne. Thanks for making us welcome, Derek. And don't forget to tell your colleagues or friends about this podcast and leave us a nice glowing review if you listen in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And to listeners, thanks for listening and we look forward to being with you again sometime very soon. See ya. See ya. If you're a person living with dementia, or if you're a family member or carer of someone living with dementia, Dementia Australia has some great resources. The National Dementia Helpline is 1800 100 500, or you can visit dementia.org.au. Dementia in Practice is an initiative of Dementia Training Australia, which is funded by the Australian Government.